0: Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from TheEthicalPanda.com.
1: And I'm Andy Nelson from The Next Real Film
0: Podcast. And today we're talking about Minute 106, which begins with Darcy looking for her taser and ends with a long shot through the cosmos as the credits roll. Joining us on the show today, we have Paul Hoppy, aka Zen Madman, who is a poker professional writer, musician, martial artist, and has been a frequent guest and occasionally official co-host and generally unofficial co-host of the Superhero Ethics and Star Wars Universe podcast that I run. Um, Paul, I'm so glad to have you with us on this, on this today. It's good to be here. Uh, it's funny. You and I have been talking about these things for, for literal decades now, but you know, on on the show, often we want to kind of start start off by getting people's kind of background. I was I don't really know this. What first got you into like comic books and superheroes and all that? Uh,
2: I don't remember. I remember (laughs) being like Superman was my favorite um, superhero as a little kid. Like I had a Superman outfit that I wore to like school interviews when I was five. And um, my barber was one of the village people's boyfriends and like did my <laughs> hair with the little curl and the little S or whatever. Um, and, uh, and my parents both worked in film. So I was always very into film. Um, you know, I mean, I had comic books as a kid that just, yeah people gave me, I guess I was never like a comics collector really, but I had some that I'd gotten and was like, well, these might be valuable someday. So I held on to them for a long time. Um, and then, you know, the Batman movies. So I was more of a sort of DC, you know, um, aficionado. And then, um, when, when the MCU started coming out, well, I, you know, I liked the X-Men movies and, and blade as well, but when the, when the MCU started coming out, um, You know, they just they started making really good movies. And I I actually think Thor was kinda the movie that sold me on the idea of the whole thing because Interesting. It like Iron Man was like, okay, Robert Downey Jr., he's fantastic. It was a great movie. And then I actually even liked Incredible Hulk. Uh, I know that's maybe a divisive one amongst some I, I people. I'm
0: also more a fan of it than many, most people.
2: And I mean, I think Edward Norton's great. And then, you know, here they made Thor and Captain America. And I was sort of like, I don't know how these are going to translate to kind of the modern day you know, cinema, and then I was like, oh, these, these, are, these are good movies, like, and it's all kind of coming together into something.
0: Awesome. Well, yeah, we're going to to hear a lot more about that and your thoughts on this movie, and we're going to start with that right after this quick promo.
1: We would love for you to jump into the conversation and join us talking about Thor, the MCU, anything Marvel, comics, I mean, any of it. Join us over in our Discord community and get in on the conversation. You can learn more by going to truestory.fm slash minute and click on the Discord link.
0: Okay, so I know Paul especially as someone who, whose parents were in the movie industry and who really loves uh, so much about the movie industry, I really want to... We're excited to have you on to talk about the credits, among other things, but we do get a few moments at the end of this movie. Um, and it starts with, you know, uh, we've just kind of come back from all the things that were happening on Asgard, and we saw Thor and Heimdall talking, and now we're back in Smith Motors with, with as I've been calling them, the Scientists Three. Um, <laughs> and, and we start with Eric, uh, you know, Darcy's looking for her taser, and and perhaps most significantly, Eric asked Darcy if she has the S- S.H.I.E.L.D. satellite codes, which it's a very quick throwaway line. But I think it's it's really significant because it shows just how much the dynamic between them and S.H.I.E.L.D. Shield has changed.
1: It is it is such an interesting little shift oh, and it's such a quick shift, too. I mean, I guess we're assuming it's later that day. I mean, there's nothing that tells us this is just later that night. It's just kind of our assumption um, because, I mean, Thor, I mean, we're cut, intercutting between here and and asgard and it just seems like it's all the same day but i mean it could be a few days later so they you know they obviously have things working with with shield now and now they're using their satellite codes to i don't know presumably continue studying uh, studying the stars and trying to figure out um, more about the cosmos so it i i like the way that it is such a subtle thing but there's there's that quick moment that we have where things are kind of coming together for all of them um and largely it makes me really wish that they had figured out how to bring Jane into more of the films other than just the Thor films. Because, I mean, it's great that we have Eric. I absolutely love Stellan Skarsgård and what he's brought into it. But I mean, how cool would it have been if Jane had kind of been one of the scientists who has kind of continued working through a lot of this stuff as well?
2: Yeah, it does feel like S.H.I.E.L.D. here kind of, you know, went from seeing, oh, these scientists might be a threat by understanding some things that are going on and then sharing it with people that we don't want them to, to being like, oh, they might be useful to us. Let's, uh, you know, (laughs) absorb them into our organization, kind of. And I I totally agree with you, Andy, about um, about, uh, Jane, where she kind of, you know, there's like a throwaway line in the Avengers about her being off safe somewhere. But it's like, it feels like she could have been a much more Integral part of of the whole universe because here where she is someone who's discovering like the whole everything about the cosmos and <laughs> it seems like that's a pretty big deal and then they kind of you know just sideline her aside from Thor too.
0: Well, especially because we'll get you know one of the next things that happens is we hear you know the voiceover as we're watching we're, we're sort of watching what Heimdall is seeing and Thor says you know how is she and Heimdall answers she searches for you and I just felt like. You know, a lot of this movie was about how, yes, Jane is falling for Thor, but she's this very serious scientist. And, like, at first, she doesn't really care that this gorgeous person keeps showing up and she keeps hitting her with her car. Like, she mostly is just interested in the science. And, I don't know, having at the end it being, you know, what she's doing, she, it's not that she's searching the to develop her theories. She's not, and I'm sure all that's happening, but it being framed as she's searching for you... Especially with something we saw in the deleted scene, which kicks it even worse. I know it kind of left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth because I don't love this idea of everything she's been studying is now down to, you know, she had one good date. and Now she's kind of like obsessively stalking that guy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you're right about the deleted scene, which I, I suppose we should talk about uh, as well. But, I mean, it's... It, it is so much that this sense of it's not she's searching for you. It's like, I mean, really, I like to think that Jane is, you know, she now has proof that this is out there. And I mean, if she is searching for him just to, like, get that proof back, because we know the Bifrost is broken. And that really was the Einstein Rosen bridge that she had been seeing and looking for. And now it's gone. So she's searching for him. But really, she's searching for, you know, This evidence again, like that would have uh, probably resonated a little better, but you're right. It does make it seem like there's nothing for her anymore except for this lost love.
2: (laughs) yeah i was I was pleased to see that there was at least one idris elbow line in uh, mm-hmm. this minute but because I mean <laughs> I enjoy him and everything, but that line did rankle me as well like I wrote down like doesn 't she search for like truth and scientific knowledge like she 's been a scientist for years or decades and she 's known Thor for like a day or a couple days, and it 's like okay I, like I buy the romance between them, but I feel like this really undermines what 's interesting and powerful about her character beyond that and you know it 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 kind of maybe foreshadows the fact that then they don't um have her be uh an integral character going forward in you know in the rest of the ncu and and shield and and all of that
0: the one way i can kind of headcanon this to work and i, I do think this is a headcanon because this is not the way the movie is framed is like Heimdall is kind of like a crusty old uncle to Thor, right? And right. is kind of like, of course, you want to ask about her. So I kind of like, it. it's like, yeah, she's she's searching for you, right. boy. Don't worry, she's still in. like that's my hope. But yeah, no, I think it, it definitely is a bit of a uh, an undercutting there. So we see her look at her watch and smile. What I, I was trying just to just remember if that's like an Easter egg or if that's there's been something about her watch before. Um, Do either one of you catch like the significance of that moment?
1: I didn't. I I don't know. If there is something significant, it's just the sense that, you know, I mean, as kind of going back to the beginning of the film where, you know, she had been timing these atmospheric disturbances uh, to the minute, as she says, it, it should have happened. They've been like right on time. And so if anything, it's one of those nods to the beginning as kind of a circular reference saying, here she is, you know, again something is supposed to be happening. I mean, they're all racing to get out to go do something with these satellite codes. So maybe that's what it is. Like, this is that exact moment, and she's looking forward to it or something. But I. But it's it seems very loose, if that was the intention.
0: So it's the only last thing about uh, this before we'll talk about the alternate ending and then get into the credits themselves... Uh, there's a moment where Thor then kind of also looks up and smiles and he's sort of like looking out over the cosmos. And Andy, you pointed out in our notes that this kind of seems a lot like the – it's a very similar pose and look to what Thor – to what Odin was doing not long ago. Um, Thor kind of a – he's not king yet, but he's kind of starting to take on more of that mantle.
1: Yeah, I was wondering, but just because – I mean it is such a profile shot and that's exactly what we had with Odin just a few minutes ago when Thor – it you know very melancholically walks out to stand next to his father and they have that conversation as they look out over asgard we we find odin in that profile shot looking very kingly and in this particular moment we like i mean we have jane looking directly into the camera i mean she's pretty much breaking the fourth wall staring right at us almost as if it's like was that heimdall's eye view, and we're, mm. there's kind of a connection there. But then when we cut to Thor, it's a profile. And it, it, it seems like if anything, to kind of really cinematically connect them, it would have been something where they were both looking straight into the camera. So the fact that that Brana sh- chose to do kind of a profile shot here, I'm like, well, maybe he was just referencing that Kingly Odin shot that we just had. But I, I wasn't quite sure. It's 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 nice shot, but I, I wasn't sure... How well it connected for me between the shot of Jane and him.
2: Yeah, to me it feels sort of like a just like the the coda or the, the just the stamp on the end. Like this is Thor, kind of as completed the the arc that that he had in this movie.
0: Definitely, definitely. So let's just quickly talk about the deleted scene. And for those of you who haven't seen it, um, basically it it starts again in Shield Motors, but it's a much better lit Shield Motors, Smith Motors, Smith, Smith Motors. Motors. I'm sorry, oh,
1: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> might as well be Shield Motors. Right, now yeah, now, now shield, shield Motors.
0: Motors. <laughs> <laughs> Although this time Eric is like there's a whole bunch of what seems like Shield agents who are there to help and other scientists, but Eric is totally in charge, and he talks about the Foster theory that we're testing out the Foster theory, which is nice because it gives us some more you know attention to her. Son- Science. But while they're doing this, they kind of uh, pull back, pulls back, and there's a a shot up to the roof where we've seen people before, and and a quick, like, quick moment where it focuses on the star at the top of the sign, and then back to Darcy and Jane, who are sitting up there. And Darcy says something like, you know, I, you know, I I think I know he would come if he could. And Jane just kind of smiles in a like, I'm not worried way, and she says, But if he can't get here on his own, maybe we can help him find his way back. And then turns on what seems like a giant flashlight, but I guess it's supposed to be some kind of like beacon into just dis- like a, putting up a flare. Like the, It's kind of like the bat signal for Thor, I think, maybe, <laughs> but into the cosmos. And and in the kind of like mist and smoke around it, we see the outline of Yggdrasil for a moment. So I, I think it's supposed to be something, not just a light, but something connected to that. And then it, it, it fades out. Um, Paul, what, what was your take on uh, this, this deleted scene?
2: I mean, I think that was just the contractually obligated skybeam at the end of (laughs) movies but um yeah it it i feel like added more to the same thing that we had in the actual in the in the final cut but um also does kind of undermine the like yes the foster theory like that's cool you know but then like she's just like yeah hey thor here's just my flashlight like come come back
0: for her to not even be participating in the science but instead just up on the roof did seem so much worse
2: right yeah yeah it and it's weird though because like when i watched the deleted scene on its own i was kind of like oh that's nice but then when i watched the movie and then watched the deleted scene i was like oh uh, i don't know i think maybe good choice to not include it although maybe they could have included her sciencing a bit more at the end i don't know
1: yeah it's it is one of those scenes where it feels um yeah, probably wise to cut this because it it creates this weird separation between. It, it feels like Eric and the scientists are really doing the scientific stuff, and again, it, I mean, it kind of fits to actually how it does end with with Jane and, and what Heimdall says. It's like what she's focused on is I'm creating this beacon so my love can come back to me, and it's like okay, but what? And she's doing that while the real scientists are downstairs. It it makes it seem a little. Uh, kind of unfortunate the way that it it plays out. Worse, I'd say, than, than the way it is, but uh, it's, it's still one of those things.
0: I, I think it's especially worse because it doesn't involve the, the Heimdall and Thor voiceover. I mean, A, because just less interest Elba in your movie is always bad. <laughs> um, but but also, I think, because to me, part of what you get in with Thor asking about this is they're both idiot, loved, lovesick teenagers. You know, like, she has all the science, but she's thinking about him. He is, like, part of this group that is supposed to be, like, watching out for all of these realms that now all of that connection has been broken and all he cares about is her. Like, at least both of them are kind of lovesick and, and focused on each other. And now when it's when you take that away and it's just her, it just looks even worse.
1: The only thing that I do— really like about this and it's one of those little marvel nods that we get here it's kind of like a little easter egg that um we don't really get until much later now in the marvel cinematic universe but it's when we hear eric talking to all these shield agents saying we're going to run another simulation using the foster theory this time using the shield astrophysical records cross-referenced with the sword database and I thought that was kind of a fun little uh, nod that we uh, we would have had a mention of sword so much earlier than we than we did otherwise.
2: Yeah, I think that would have had a, a really good effect in terms of when they did finally introduce sword for it to not feel like just. To me, when they did, it felt a little bit like just oh, another one of these organizations. But if they name dropped them in like their third or fourth movie, I feel like it it would have kind of made that feel a little more smooth when they finally did introduce them. Um, and I, I will say, actually, for this scene, I really enjoyed the way it was shot. The, yeah, okay. you know, the, the camera movement kind of coming out from uh, the the interior of the shop and then panning up to, you know, um, Jane and Darcy on the roof. I thought it looked really great. Uh, but in terms of actually in context of the movie, you know, for content, I, I think it was a good choice to, to pull it.
0: Definitely. So then we cut to the credits, and let's talk about them. And we're going to do something for all of these minutes where we're both going to talk about the individual credits, but also just talk about credits in general. Because they're obviously a very important part of the movie, but that I think a lot of filmgoers, myself included, have mostly just ignored for most of my movie going life. And the MCU has, like, with the introduction of the whole like mid and post credit scenes wound up like having us pay a lot more attention to credits and paul i know um th- this is an issue that you've cared about for a while that like it's important for people to watch the credits it's always been important for you and and that when we were talking about minutes for you to come on when i suggested these you, you like the idea of or you may have even suggested like doing some of the credit minutes um wh- why is it that for you like you think the credits are such an important thing and that that you wanted to talk about them especially
2: Yeah. So, I mean, my parents both worked in film and in the film industry, a credit is like, it's like, it's where your resume comes from basically, you know, and people are always working to basically amass, whether it's more credits or good credits, you know, in good productions. Um, and when you, when you look at the credits and you think about how long they are, right. Which is one of the reasons people don't sit through them uh, all the time. If, if they're not teased with some, you know, some post credit scenes, uh, you know, you it just you. I mean, it's hard not to realize, or it helps you realize just how many people are involved in the making of a large, uh, you know, a big budget, or even even an indie film, really. You know, and um, it's they're long days, long weeks. You know, I mean, they work six, seven day weeks. Like there will be fourteen, sixteen hour days sometimes, um, and just the amount of work that goes into a production. I think having some appreciation for all the work and how many people and, you know, and who, who was there. Um, I, I think there's value to that. And that was something mostly um, my mom instilled in me when, you know, when we would go to see movies, when, when I was a kid, we would always sit through all the credits actually somewhat humorously. Um, when I saw Iron Man, um, I went with my wife who was my girlfriend then, and she doesn't like sitting through credits. <laughs> and she's like, I don't want to sit through I'm like, all right, fine. So we left. <laughs> and I, oh, no. I didn't find out that there were post credit scenes until actually we saw, I think the incredible Hulk, like we sat through and saw, you know, the end there and it was like, oh, that's okay. That's interesting. Huh? The little cameo there. And then we'd rented Iron Man and had it playing in the other, you know, had the credits were still playing and we weren't really paying attention. And then I heard Samuel L. Jackson's voice. And I was like, what? so like so I was like hmm I I should have always abided by you know my mom's philosophy of of watching all the credits
0: (laughs) well it's funny I mean it's hard to think about that like when these movies were made it doesn't feel like that long ago but yeah think about how much the internet culture has changed that today like if you watch a movie and don't stick around like you're gonna know if you're anywhere on social media that there's an end credit scene like so the idea yeah. that you went that entire time from Iron Man to then seeing Incredible Hulk and never knew that there were those end credits is kind of that alone is remarkable
1: yeah, exactly, yeah. very quick how much the time changes yeah <laughs> and if you
0: obviously i you obviously are, are have been in and out of the film business for quite some time what how do you feel about um like the importance of credits and especially of Marvel kind of you know making us pay more attention to them
1: uh, i mean i 've always stayed around watching credits uh, much to my wife 's and kids chagrins <laughs> um, but i i 've just it 's just instilled in me i 've just always uh, i don 't know just as somebody who wanted to work in the film industry, I wanted to kind of like get a sense of like who all these people were, and so I just started doing it probably in high school. And, uh, it just, I, 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 don't know, it just developed into a habit and I'm a, like one of those people who just kind of sits there and, you know, sometimes the cleaning crew is standing there, like staring yeah. at me with their eyes, like rolling, like, come on, dude, we just want to clean this thing. And, but it's just one of those things. I, I don't know. I find some peace in there listening to the music, um, watching the credits and just, I, it's time for me to also process about it. So I've always done it. And, you know, I mean, you know, mid, and post-credit scenes. I mean, Marvel didn't invent them. They've right. certainly been around. Um, and uh, I mean, I think Ferris Bueller was one of the more uh, well-known ones. That's that's the one I know most, yeah. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, they have been around. Uh, it's just not a lot of people did them. As somebody who loved staying around for the credits, I always was thrilled when I got that little tiny nugget at the end and no one else knew about it. Mm-hmm. Like, that just always made me so happy. Uh, and now with Marvel, it's like, you know, everybody knows, oh, well, we got to stick around. And like all, and now it's funny because it's like there's always those couple people who get up to leave, and everybody's kind of scoffing at them. Well, who are these people? They just don't know what they're doing when they come to a Marvel movie. So,
0: Though I often have to say to them, like, wait till you get to your 40s and your back is sore and your bladder's not <laughs> as good. Like, <clears throat> I will often, like, dash out, use the bathroom, come back to watch the credits. Right. Just... <laughs> but yeah, and, and I, just, I just do need to say also with the Ferris Bueller scene, it's a beautiful, great scene. It makes sticking around to the end great. But Absolutely. the whole scene is making fun of you for sticking around that long. It's like <laughs> the movie's right, yep. over. Go home. Go Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so here, as I think is often in, in not just Marvel movies, but in a lot of movies now, we should have credits with two parts. Where the first, like I, I grew up where the credits were literally just you know the scrolling names, and now we'll often have like a scene of some kind that's like animation or like you know moving around the world, or often it's like you know animations from the movies themselves. And here, what we get is it, it, it's kind of a uh, 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 we're taking us through the cosmos and slowly realizing that we're seeing Yggdrasil. We're seeing all these different, like, nebulas and worlds and different realms that are part of, you know, the the allness of of the the Asgardians' understanding of things. And these this were scenes that we're originally, as we talked about way, way back, that there was originally a lot more exposition of at the start of the movie as we and that these were the scenes we're actually going to watch. Uh, so I kind of like that they still use them. But what what's kind of your reaction to seeing like this particular scene over the credits and like, how, how do you think it, it, the two work together?
2: Yeah, I, I really appreciate having a visual behind some of the credits. They generally do it for the bigger names, probably all the people who have points in the movie. <laughs> um, but it, it, you know, it does kind of set off the early parts of the credits from the later parts of the credits. It, it kind of, you know, the, like the way a striped shirt makes you, your dimensions look different. Like, it kind of, by breaking it up, I think it helps. Um, I, I, I'll i give a Winter Soldier shout out. Like, the visuals in the credits at the end there are amazing, um, but... The, I think Marvel's done a really good job with this. It's it's not just Marvel, right? Other other um, studios are doing similar things, but having here having some story kind of um, in there with it, I, I think is a is a good idea. Um, I, I guess I didn't totally follow that as much because I was more looking at the names. So like I've conditioned myself to not to maybe yeah. not notice <laughs> what uh, what what they're doing to try and get you to stay.
0: That that was part of why I was asking because i was wondering like does it feel like this is bringing more attention to the credits mm-hmm. cuz help or is it kind of distracting from it cuz it's like you're seeing this you're mostly kind of watching the thing that's on the screen and the names are just kind of popping up at the sides
1: well it's definitely like a, a top credits end credits type of separation is really what it is because like all of the stuff that is through the animation i mean it, we, we would have had that at the beginning with all the names still with yeah. the animation right it's just i think a lot of filmmakers over the last you know number of decades have really started feeling like you know we don't need to have all these credits at the top sometimes not even having the title other than like the studio logos and i mean in this film we had you know, the studio logos. We And then I think it was just like Paramount Pictures presents a Marvel Studios production or something like that. Mm -hmm. It was only that. And and no, we didn't even have the title. And so they decided, let's take all of those top credits. Let's cut that Heimdall. It was a big Heimdall monologue that he had about the realms and all this sort of stuff that theoretically would have been over all this. And let's just take it to the end and just get into the story. And I think that's been largely a filmmaker's thing uh, of just, you know, let's just get into the story and not worry about all the stuff at the top. And so we still, as as Paul said, kind of have this bifurcated set of credits with all the people who are probably getting the points and the back-end deals and everything in this first part, and then everyone else just kind of shoveled in at the end. And, you know, I, I don't mind it, and I, I do think it's actually interesting that Marvel – really decided to play with that even further to create that mid-credits scene that we, I mean, we don't have here, but it certainly is something that's going to pop up here uh, before long.
0: We're getting a little bit into like film history here, but Andy, you may know this. My, My vague recollection from something I think I read 20 years ago is that George Lucas was one of the first to do that. You know, If you think about the Star Wars movies, they don't have the kind of scrolling credits during intro music that often movies at that time had. And, and in my memory is he actually got sued for it because it was a violation of, of union rules at the time, which is part of why he wound up kind of independently producing uh, some of the later movies. Do you, Andy, do you know any of these stories or am I completely making this up by accident?
1: Uh, it's entirely possible. I don't have the specifics if it was actually Star Wars or or some of those other kind of mm-hmm. like in that period uh, when yeah. filmmakers were doing that. But it's it is entirely possible that that is right around the window when this started happening. Um, and I mean, I get it. It's, you know, if you're going if you want to step into a world like, you know, in a galaxy, uh, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away um when you start seeing names that remind you oh yeah he's that director of american graffiti oh yeah. and uh, that you know these this is that actor and that actor uh, it can already kind of put a wall up to kind
2: of getting yourself set into that world yeah i think it's it's interesting cuz um in i mean tv shows kind of went the same way too where shows like lost and heroes would just have like the shortest intro possible basically it's it's just the title of the show and it's like like lost is like one note that's swelling basically. Right. And then it, it but it's like, it's really right into the story. Um, and I, I think it's a really good point about when you see some people's names that, you know, from other things, it's hard to, it can kind of take you out of particularly something that's science fiction or, or fantasy or some, some very other world. Um, and, uh, I, also, in, in like TV shows, I always found it frustrating when I'd see a special guest star and I'm like, oh, now I know that so-and-so is going to show up. Now I know <laughs> yeah. that Angel is going to show up in this episode of Buffy, right? I'd rather it's a surprise. Like, yeah, the cre- um, intro
0: credits and spoilers were often very frustrating. Exactly,
2: exactly. But um, but in in I know in, in movies and – I guess it's mostly just movies, not TV so much, but like having your name before the title is like a big deal. You know, having like an and or a with is like, that's something in a contract, right? That's somebody, someone negotiated for, you know, and Jack Nicholson as the Joker or something, right? Or, right. Um, you know, and I think this either had with or and Anthony Hopkins as Odin. Yes. right? Like that's his credit. His credit isn't Anthony Hopkins. It's Anthony Hopkins as Odin or either with or and. And so, yeah, kind of pushing those to the end of the movie, you probably had to pay people a little bit more to kind of make this change in the, you know, in, in contracts, I would imagine, like, because, um, you know, having the name in the front is like, you know, a Kenneth Branagh film. It's, you know, it's like, okay, that's, they didn't always say that, right? They didn't always have the director's name up front. And they don't always, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't.
0: So um, we've gone a while already, as we expected, but let's talk about some of the specific credits. Um, Andy, what are some that particularly jumped out at you?
1: Uh, well, I mean, yeah, as we said, this is really kind of like the big names here. So we're looking at uh, Kenneth Branagh, the screenwriters, the story uh, producers, uh, director of photography, production designer, editor, costume designer, visual effects, co-producer, music. Uh, so it's very much kind of like the technical people who are involved here before we really get into the cast. And I mean, it's I, I think when I when I look at this, you know, you really start getting sense. One, obviously, you know, the Marvel team, th- their own. Avengers team is really starting to come together by this point and you're seeing a lot of these Marvel names that are going to kind of continue through the, uh, through this franchise. And it's nice to kind of see, but then also it's, it's great. I mean, I mean, Kenneth Branagh, I mean, his new film, Belfast is still in theaters and, you know, Harris Zamberlocos is still his director of photography for that film. So clearly they have had a long working relationship, likewise, Patrick Doyle. So it's nice seeing these names, um, that are working together here that will continue, um, working together, um, you know, through time. And I, I love kind of having those connections and seeing that. And then just like, I mean, Bo Welch production design, I mean, there's a reason that I'm so in love with like Heimdall's observatory and the way some of the things look here, because Bo Welch, I mean, has been a production design name that you've wanted to see for a very long time. I just, I think that uh, the, the worlds that, that he has created I think are, are just fantastic sometimes. And so, um, so yeah, I just, I, a lot of strong names in in the uh, this first part of the credits here.
2: yeah, I, I agree. Um, a lot of directors will have a, a director of photography that they work with very often, right and clearly um, Branna and um, was it Zapperlocus?
0: Yeah, Zamparo right.
2: um, have, have worked together a lot on some of these new Poirot films, too, that I'm sort of interested to see, but yeah. uh, no one but David Suchet will ever be my Poirot. But <laughs> <laughs> um, also a It's all about to, the mustache, right? <laughs> right exactly. The, the mustache. I feel like it has to be dark. I feel like a blonde mustache. I don't know. I can't handle a blonde <laughs> Poirot, but I do love Kenneth Branagh, and uh, I'm curious to see. Um, Wait, Branagh's not playing Poirot, is he? Yeah. Yeah. Branagh's wow. playing Poirot. He.
1: I actually really liked him in, in Murder on the Orient Express, uh, you know, okay. again, okay. Yeah, so this whole thing. But, yeah, I'm very curious to see the next one for
2: sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll okay. definitely check those out. Um, also, a shout out to the editor, um, Paul Rubel, um, who worked on a lot of Michael Mann films, um, like The Insider, which I, I think I think The Insider – it's like a two-and-a-half-hour movie that went by super fast to me, and some of that's the gripping performances. You know, there's a lot to that, but you can't get a two-and-a-half-hour movie to not feel like a drag without fantastic editing, um, you know. And and I think that editing can really—I think people underestimate it how How much my mom was a film editor, so you know I've heard <laughs> a lot over the years uh, i I kind of grew up in a <laughs> an editing room at, at points in time, but um, you know just how much the editing has to do with getting the most out of the performances, like not just like which takes do you use, but like exactly how it's cut um, and um, and so I, I feel like this movie really does flow very well. And, um, you know, didn't have to like it could have had an extra five minutes or five minutes less and, and not worked as well. And, you know, in terms of that one scene, like, was it the editor who decided to cut it? Was it Branagh? Was it Feige? Like, we don't know. Well, maybe we do know. Maybe, you know, <laughs> I don't know. But but um, often that will be, you know, I, mean, I think sometimes we talk about people who get too successful to be edited at some yeah. point. Right. George and Lucas,
0: who we brought up before being a. Sure,
2: <laughs> you know, um, you know, maybe like a George R. R. Martin or a, or a J.K. Rowling or whatever, like, and then they kind of just get to make it however they wanted, and there's there's something to be said for like the author's vision or whatever, but like often a good editor can kind of be like, okay, if we just you know rein this in here, this in here, um, maybe. Maybe we'll get more out of what you, you know, what you're putting into it, as opposed to trying to squeeze every last thing into it. Um, you know, sometimes less is more.
0: And a, on a different note, on the Superhero Ethics podcast, uh, A couple, well, by by the time this goes out, it'll be a couple months ago, but we did an episode on the movie Jaws, and a lot of what we talked about was the the editing job uh, that um, Verna Fields did, which I... YouTube may know more this than I do, but as, as I understand it, like, in film schools now, like, they teach, like, they use that movie as, like, an example of, like, how important film editing is because of how well it's edited and that kind of thing.
1: She's definitely one of the, the big editors out yeah. there. So, yeah. Uh,
0: the, the credit that... The, jumped out at me is, and I've talked to him before, but I want to just kind of like, you know, kind of, it's the last time we'll see him, so mention it. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski, one of the writers, he's probably my favorite Hollywood writer right now. Um, Babylon 5, I think, is just very cheesy, very campy, made in the 90s, and it really shows. But it it was the first show, at least one of the first, where... When he sat down to write episode one, he already knew everything that was going to happen by the last episode of episode of season five. And he's written a lot of other great stuff. He's very involved with Sensate, which is a show a lot of people love. And I, I believe he was a, a Thor comic book writer for a while. And just yeah. – we've talked a lot about the great writing and, and some of the weak writing. And I, I would put that on him as well, though he had a co-writer. But just every time I – seeing his name and, and actually getting to see him in, in person in the movie, it, it was just – You know, I didn't know that about this movie uh, until, like, we really went through this minute-by-minute analysis. And so just seeing his name on the credits again just kind of made me happy.
1: It's, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, we talked about him um, back when he had his brief little cameo, and uh, it was like right at a moment where you lost internet or something. And so you didn't even get to talk on that episode when when he made his appearance. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so I'm glad that you get to give him a little shout out. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski, obviously, uh, yeah, has had um, quite a career, and uh, it is kind of fun. I mean, it was great that he had that little cameo in here and has done a lot of stuff. Not a lot of screenwriting for feature films. But as you pointed out, it's really kind of like the TV world that yeah. um, that he does his stuff. But yeah, his comic line, I think that's largely why um, he ended up kind of helping develop the story here because his is the one where you know post Ragnarok, Thor um, you know settles in Oklahoma as as you know Donald Blake and then has to kind of like you know figure out how to get himself back and everything. And
0: which we were talking about with a uh, Will last week, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, because Asgard is that giant floating. City, yeah. you know, right above globa
0: <laughs> and, and just last shout out for him. Um, <clears throat> as I said, a lot of the complaints that people have about Babylon Five is a very low budget for the time, low effects, and the studio interfered a lot with his vision of it. He has now gotten a green light, I believe, they're starting production to do to a remake of Babylon Five, where he's not going to have the kind of <clears throat> not going to have those kind of limitations. So, oh, end of my JMS uh, mm-hmm. um, prompts, but yeah, for either of you, uh probably a good time to wrap yeah. up. But any other wa- last credit you want to you want to mention and bring up?
1: I did just want to just mention real quick, like which ones have done other Marvel projects uh, yeah. projects since. Um, so I'll try to go through this pretty quick. Um, Ashley Miller and uh, Zach stentz, who um, who were co-screenwriters, just as a note with screenwriting there's you can have an ampersand and between writers or an a and D and between writers if it's an ampersand, that means they actually wrote together mm. and then if it's a and D, that means that that person wrote separately as kind of coming on and doing a rewrite so Ashley Miller and Zach Stentz actually collaborated together uh, to write um they they did um they actually worked on x men first class together, working on that script. And I just have to say, I'm a little horrified, though, to to bring up, and I just don't want this to actually ever happen. But they, it has been announced that they are working on the remake of Big Trouble in Little China. Oh wow!
0: Oh, I,
1: my heart's a little <laughs> broken that that has uh, somebody's been talking about that. So
0: it's a one of those movies that is such a classic that I don't want to see people redo. It also hasn't aged that well in a lot of ways. So
1: hey, bite your tongue, Mister. I, <laughs> I love that movie so much. Okay, sure. I'll acknowledge it might be my uh, young eyes still uh, pining for that movie. But yeah,
0: you know, I I love Ghostbusters, but the Bill Murray romance not so much. Oh no, um, no.
1: Well, yeah. There's yeah. not quite so. There's not quite as much. I mean, there's still you know arranged marriages and stuff. But you know. You know, it's I don't. Know, it's not Ghostbusters level.
2: I <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't seen Big Trouble in Little China in a minute, but uh, I I think the prospects of a remake are are somewhat frightening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you <laughs> know, we'll see. We'll see. Who knows? Well, if
1: there's one person out in Hollywood who loves getting stuff remade just because of all the extra coins in his pocket, it certainly is John Carpenter. So I'm not <laughs> Fair. that Fair. surprised, really. Oh. Um, okay, so Don Payne, the other writer. Did the I don't know if he should be proud of it or not, but the <laughs> Fantastic Four: Rise of the Silver Surfer Ooh. movie, and then also did the story for Thor: The Dark World. Um, so that's his little uh, touch okay. in, not, in Marvel.
0: Not two highlights of a career, but but you know. Good, good things on resume, nonetheless. Paychecks, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Paychecks. it's something, it's something. Um, and then we have uh, of the of the people who have worked on on in this chunk of the credits. The only other one, other than the Marvel people, I'm not digging into like Kevin Feige and those names because guess what, they have been involved in them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Alexandra Byrne, who did the costume designs for this film, um, ha- and she has worked a lot with Brana over the years. But she did this. She did the Avengers. She did Guardians of the Galaxy, Avengers: Age of Ultron, Doctors. Strange uh, and uh, is working on The Flash right now. So she has done a lot of other uh, Marvel and other comic book movies.
0: And I think the, the kind of dog that didn't bark there that's worth commenting on is that the person we're not saying who went on to do more stuff with Marvel is Kenneth Branagh because yeah, yeah. A, 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 he was trying to set the tone for Thor. And it's interesting because we, we've talked spent this whole movie talking about how much we love the Shakespearean tone. But also, I think it's pretty widely acknowledged, and I would agree with it, that Thor really comes into his own in Avengers and then Ragnarok and other things like that, where they kind of get away from it somewhat. Um, there, yeah, it's Do either of you know, were, were there ever plans for Branagh to do more Thor and he decided not to? Or was he always going to be one and done? I
1: would imagine that he would have liked to continue um, I, I just don't know I, I haven't heard anything about it I'm, I'm gonna have to do some digging uh, before we get to uh, Thor the dark world and just and try to try to get a sense like did he just not like the script for that movie and so chose to not do it or did he was he even asked like I don't know like um, because I mean I think I mean there is a sense that Thor it's not like a lot not many people consider it like one of the top tier. Uh, films of the MCU. So it, to that end, it's fairly middling, even though it did kind of open the cosmos for the storytelling, and largely, I think, made people feel more comfortable with what Marvel was going to be doing. But still, I think there is a thing about Thor that people are like. Yeah, it's there. So I, I don't know. I'll admit,
0: I was I was someone in that camp before we did this like deep analysis of it. So yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I thought that Thor basically set out what it needed to do. Uh, Set out and did what it needed to do um, in a way that I I didn't really expect. I I was at the time very skeptical that they were going to be able to take this movie and work as well as it did. And uh, on on this rewatch, I I found um, a lot of the Asgard stuff less compelling than in the you know the first few viewings, but I found a lot of the the Earth stuff more compelling. Like just the the scientists three, I just really enjoyed their dynamic, and then their dynamic with Thor. I,
0: I do have to ask, how much of that is having seen Darcy and Wanda Vision, and just kind of loving Darcy all the more because of that?
2: I mean, Darcy. <laughs> honestly, like I'll watch Kat Dennings in anything. So, yeah, like definitely. she was one of the reasons that I liked this, and she's one of the reasons that Thor: The Dark World isn't like my least favorite Marvel movie. And and that was basically when she and um and Randall Park showed up in. Wandavision, that was when I actually liked Wandavision. I was like, oh, yeah. okay, I can get on board with this show. <laughs> but like, I guess I could do with a lot more of the side characters. A lot of the time, I don't know. Um, but yeah, here I think I think it would have been a valid choice to see the the script or the the story for Thor: The Dark World and be like, mm, maybe I'll go do some Poirot. I don't know. Yeah, um, but. <laughs> Uh, Here, you know, there's five people involved in the writing of this movie, aside from whatever producer notes and whatever else was going on. Um, You know, there's there's also Mark Protasevich, the story. So there's there's two people writing a story and then three people writing a screenplay from that, although two of them as a team. So maybe that was in iterations. I, I don't I don't know the details on that, but Often, I think that can be a bad sign that something had a lot of rewrites or that there's kind of like too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, I I remember being really surprised with Spider-Man Homecoming, just seeing how many writing credits there were and how good I thought the movie was anyway. I think Marvel's done a really good job overall of like having movies feel like they have continuity, even when there are um, really a lot of people involved in in the writing. I think that's very hard to do, um, but they've done it well.
0: And I know that during Phase 2, that the story that was often going around was that a lot of kind of top-level directors were not interested in working with Feige or, or the MCU because they felt like they were being too shoehorned into, like, doing things that fit the MCU overall story instead of the stories they want to told. And, you know— I was, it was probably Joe from the internet on TikTok and Twitter that told me this, so take it with massive <laughs> grains of salt. But but I, I think part of the story that I remember is that Bran, Branagh is often cited as one of the directors who, like, got scared away because of the mcu MCUing too hard. And I definitely think Phase 2 was a time when there was a lot of pushing of the larger narrative into the individual movies – whether Branagh was actually caught up in that, uh, that may be just pure speculation, but I know it was one of the stories going around at the time.
1: Well, certainly. I mean, the whole Edgar Wright story with Ant-Man, I think, was, I mean, exactly to the point that you're making, is like, those are the stories that people were hearing. They're like, oh, you know, maybe I don't want to work with them if they're not going to let me tell the story I want to tell.
0: Which, I mean, Ant-Man, I think, turned out to be a wonderful movie, but I don't agree. I do, too. Anyway, yeah. so, Paul, for people who are discovering you for the first time on this episode, um what's Zen Madman?
2: Yeah, that's that's an alias I came up with about 13 years ago or so. Um, I do mostly poker content, but I also write some fiction. Uh, I've got music that I made some time ago. I do some streaming. Um, you can find me on Twitter as Zen Madman, on Twitch as Zen Madman, on YouTube as well. Uh, although mostly I have Zen Madman poker there. And uh, I'm Maybe going to have a podcast soon of my own. Maybe by the time this comes out, which will be just uh, a bunch of fiction called Zen Madman Presents. Nice. Nice. Cool. Yeah.
0: I, I Obviously, you know, I've been friends for decades. I've read a lot of your fiction. It's really good. Um, there's some stories based in New York City that are that have nothing to do with any things I've ever lived through. <laughs> uh, but yeah, def- definitely a lot of stuff worth reading. Uh, check Paul out on on Twitch and all those other places. Uh, and of course, <clears throat> if you go, go to uh, TheEthicalPanda.com, that's where you'll find my podcast, which you'll find Paul is a frequent guest on on both superhero ethics and The Ethical Panda. And of course, if you like podcasts like this, you should check out all the other seasons of Marvel Movie Minute, as well as a lot of other great... Um, a lot of other great movie content, all of which is on the next Real Family podcast. So I'm by myself, Paul, Andy. Thank you all for being listeners. Thank you, uh, thank you all for being great fans and have a great day. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season of music is One Last ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.